Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. This week on Weather Geeks, I'm joined by two of the best tornado experts in the world, the George Lynn Cross Research Professor from the University of Oklahoma, Dr. Howard Bluestein, and Assistant Professor from Northern Illinois University, Dr. Victor Gensini. Today we'll talk about one of nature's most awe-inspiring creations, the tornado. We're going to talk about the evolution of tornado forecasting, the importance of observing tornadoes in action, and where does the future of tornado forecasting lie? Thank you both for joining us. Hey, let's just launch right in because we're talking tornadoes and everybody knows tornadoes. Some people fear tornadoes and some people are just in awe of them. Now, uh, you are actually uh, the inspiration, I understand, Dr. Bluestein, for the movie Twister. So talk about whether that's first of all true and then tell us the real story. Well, I don't know if it's exactly true. <laughs> But what they showed in the movie was something like what we do, but we don't have, we don't have good guys and bad guys. Yeah, but <laughs> there is some shred of truth? In Maybe this a little bit of shred of truth. Yeah. Well, tell, tell us about the shred, though. I'm curious. Well, we began uh, chasing tornadoes. Uh, uh, I wasn't the first to chase tornadoes. I, I came to Oklahoma when people were just starting to, to chase tornadoes. But uh, we began, t uh, for the first time, to use a device that we tried to place in the path of tornadoes, and this was Toto. Back in 1981, a long time ago, this is a 400-pound uh, cylindrical device that we, we had in the back of a pickup truck, and the idea was you'd go out in front of a tornado and, and uh, 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 let the thing down, place it up, let the tornado come over. It sounds it. like a great idea until it, it, practice, right? It was a great <laughs> idea, <laughs> except yes. it was very, very difficult exactly. to do with practice. And, and, and uh, uh, one day, I remember, in 1982, we had Toto out the Totable Tornado Observatory, yeah. and a tornado was, was going over Altus Air Force Base. It was coming right for Toto. And of course, what do you think happened? The tornado dissipated before it came yeah. to Toto. And we said, okay, there's another tornado forming. Let's try to get it. And the tornado moved off to the northwest. Totally right. changed direction. Right. So we gave up on that, and uh, National Space Storms Laboratory used it for a few years. But the late, uh, the middle to late 1980s, we started to uh, use a, a portable Doppler radar to make measurements. And then that, uh, we got more sophisticated with that, and then Josh Werman came by with the Doppler and wheels, and then so on and so on. Right, so that's sort of, and we're gonna delve into all of that in the course of the podcast, and I wanna talk to Victor, because you're what I call sort of a, a new generation expert, I think uh, highly respected in the field as well. Tell us a little bit about sort of what you've been up to with tornadoes, just as an intro, and then we're gonna really probe this. Well, it's, first of all, it's an honor to be here and sitting next to Howie, I mean, reading papers after paper after paper that his research group puts out, and then really growing up with some of these first videos of tornadoes with Howie out there, you know, turning the, turning the portable Doppler, and that was, sort of fascinating from a curiosity perspective when, when you really start diving into tornadoes. Who were the folks that were really trying to learn about the ins and outs of the physics and the thermodynamics? And that you know, really sparked me. And then, of course, a tornado hit my high school. We've all maybe had that weather event as a weather geek. 
and then really never look back after that. Yeah, we're, we're trying to push the envelope now with these, these sort of events from a forecasting perspective and really trying to understand, um, you know, Ed Lorenz's chaos theory of this, this 10 to 14 day cutoff with numerical weather prediction, that initial, you know, initial condition problem versus these force boundary problems where maybe we can push a little bit further down the road. And uh, it's a really challenging, and you get humbled when you deal with long range prediction and any prediction, just in general. Sure. Um, you know, start from the premise that you're going to be wrong and then, and then work to make it better. So, you know, with that introduction of you both, let's just launch into some discussion and let's go where it takes us. What would you consider to be our most challenging aspect or sort of holy grail of tornado research or forecasting here in 2018 right now? I think, I think the holy grail is what's been the holy grail for the last 20 years or more. I had a feeling you would say that. Uh, we know that the most intense uh, tornadoes come from supercells, but not all supercells produce tornadoes. Right. How can you tell whether a supercell is going to produce a tornado and when it isn't? And a lot of research has been focused on that, Vortex 1, Vortex 2, and continuing research. But I think we all would agree with that. But What's, I mean, we've been at this for a while. You yes. just, just, what's missing? What do we need? Or what do we just not have at our disposal to really, because I think we understand a lot about supercell dynamics. I think we understand a lot about signatures from radar, polarimetric. What, what, what are we missing? I think from a, from a, uh, uh, a forecasting standpoint uh, and an observation standpoint, we need to have measurements of temperature near the ground. I think that's very important. That's something that's been missing. We have nice Doppler radar observations throughout the storm, but we need to have the temperature measurements. What, and Victor, you actually wanted to add to that. Yeah, I mean, you're getting the kinematics, right? You're, you're scanning with yes. the radar and we're getting this incredibly high resolution data, but unfortunately the thermodynamics of the, the near storm environment in many ways are still, there, there are projects, the stick nets and so on, that can get us fairly good resolution data, but we don't have a large sample size yet. And, and it's still gonna be a challenge uh, and even if we do, there, you know, there's still the argument of perhaps how is that going to translate to the warning process and are we going to be able to ever give that information at that high resolution to a forecaster to make a better decision? Well, I don't I, know. Yeah, I, I agree. But I, I want to kind of pivot back to the, your discussion about the need for the temperature data at the ground because we may have people listening to the Weather Geek podcast here that you know, are curious about tornadoes that, but don't really understand those sort of near supercell environments. So talk to us a little bit about what that provides from a meteorological sort of 101 perspective. Sure, or 100. Yeah. Less than, <laughs> less than 101. Uh, if you consider a, a supercell storm and the forward flank, the precipitation falls out from the anvil, it evaporates, some of it evaporates, and the air gets cool. And that cool air Falls, the cold air is near the ground. Right. And next to that is the relatively warm air outside the storm. And if you can imagine what would happen if you put a paddle wheel in that flow, right. you'd have down in the cold air and up in the warm air. You'd develop rotation about a horizontal axis. Right. And then the air parcels then follow the air and get into the updraft and are tilted up. And that's where you produce the tornado. If you have very, very cold air, if the air is too cold, then it's going to be very, very difficult to lift the air up in the tornado. Right. The cold air is very dense, it takes a lot of work to do that. If the air is not cold enough, you're not going to generate very much spin. Right, what we call vorticity. Vorticity, yeah. horizontal vorticity. Yeah, sure. And one of the yeah. things the Vortex 1 showed us is the forward flank is important, so is the rear flank downdraft. That, you know, potentially that the 
you want to get really geeky, the equivalent potential temperature, the theta E of the downdraft, and is it too cold? Is it, uh, I think the preliminary sort of consensus out of that, and how we can correct me if I'm wrong, was that if the descending RFD was too cold, that it would not really favor, at least on their sample of storms, tornado genesis, right. versus a maybe a descending rear flank downdraft that as it descended maybe warmed dry adiabatically and had proper thermodynamic characteristics that, pr that promoted tornado genesis. Right, so. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I, and there's differing camps of thought there, by the way, uh, well, as to how important that process is. Well, and that's where yeah. I was going with yeah. that, because I was, I, I, I've heard that there's actually mm -hmm. some people that maybe would push back a little bit on that. And what's their argument? Well, <laughs> I mean, the, the, that's the key, right? We can run models and we can change things in the models that perhaps show that it's, it's you're right or you're wrong. And I think the, the, the issue many times is that the problem is so sensitive that extracting out those individual components is sometimes very hard. Now, when it comes from a, from a modeling standpoint, suppose we don't have observations, but we can do, mm -hmm. we can simulate uh, these things in a model, uh, you then have additional difficulties. For example, I made the blanket easy statement, well, the rain falls out and some of it evaporates <laughs> and it gets cool. Well, okay, uh, how much rain? What are the size of the raindrops? Uh, is there melting? Uh, is, there, is there sublimation? Uh, uh, exactly precisely what's the process that's going on. And the models don't replicate these processes. That's exactly uh, right. Exactly. There's, mm -hmm. a, there, there's some doubt. There were different, different types of schemes. People have different types of uh, ways of, of, of determining this. So you're talking about the sort of parameterization? The, the parameterization exactly right. of so microphysics. what we talk about, big fancy word, microphysical parameterization, how we represent the stuff in the clouds, the raindrops, the snow, the right. grapple, the hail, exactly what right. we call hydrometeors. Mm -hmm. And so that would suggest then that there still needs to be work. Because I, I know when I was at NASA, I worked with a guy named Brad Ferrier who yes. was developing okay. one of the ice microphysics yeah. scheme in, in WARF. Yes. And so you mean to tell me we're still, we're still not there? We're still grappling with it, and the more complicated schemes actually take into account all the, all the little particles that are there. Right. To do that, that takes an incredible amount of computer time. So you can't do that in real time. Right. So eventually when computers get, get uh, bigger and even more powerful, we might be able to do that. And there's an additional complication. Right? What's that? And that's, and that's aerosols. Ah, yes, uh, the particulate the, absolutely. The, what do you have, what do you in, have the in the air? Do you have yeah. pollen? Uh, do you have dust? What do you that's have up there? Right. That's yeah. going to affect your microphysics, too. Yeah. And there are some people that think that's very important, for example, for hail formation. Sure. Well, I, I, you know, and all of us have probably taught some kind of basic meteorology course. We talk about there's something called heterogeneous nucleation yeah. where mm -hmm. uh, you need some type of seed yes. for clouds to form. But uh, it's interesting that you're talking about it in the context of supercell storms and, yes. and, and, and weather. So, Victor. Yeah, we see it in, in hurricane forecasting. Right. One of the major mitigation factors for hurricanes in the Atlantic can often be the Saharan air layer that's infected mm -hmm. off of Africa. And to the degree of how important that is in a much smaller scale process like a, a supercell, one would hypothesize not as much, but maybe it is really important. And I don't know that we're there yet in many of these situations. I mean, the modeling will get there, but I agree with Howie, the observations need to start. Need to, if you're gonna try to drive modeling and theory about what you see in the physical world. It's got to start with observation. Welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we're talking with two of the world's best experts on tornadoes, Dr. Howard Bluestein and Dr. Victor Gensini. Uh, Howard Bluestein, as most people know him, is a professor at the University of Oklahoma, and Dr. Gensini is at Northern Illinois University. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Marshall. Now, 
we were talking about some of the sort of ins and outs of tornado forecasting and the challenges associated with understanding tornado environments. I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about your own personal experiences. Is there a storm or tornado that really sticks out in your mind as being inspirational to you from wanting to be a scientist? Or is there a storm that you recall as a scientist that really sticks in your mind? Well, I think there's a storm that I didn't see that I was sort of near, I think how 50 miles away being near, uh, when I was uh, very, very young, I think I was about five years old, growing up in, in the Boston area, there was a, a large tornado hit Worcester, Massachusetts. And uh, I've told this story many, many times. Uh, but I remember that I was outside playing and the sky was getting a little yellow, yellowy, it was very eerie. And my mother came and got me and said, Howie, come inside. I did want to go inside. I was having fun. I was playing outside. She said, well, there's a tornado coming, and tornadoes take little boys and suck them up into the clouds. <laughs> and I didn't believe any of it, but I had to go in the house. So that, that's, that's, that's my first experience with a tornado. Yeah. How about you, Victor? April 20th, 2004. You know, some dates are just etched in your mind. And for me, that it was called Terrible Tuesday in the Illinois Valley. And uh, it was it, the synoptic situation was a warm front uh, moving from south to north across Illinois, and a supercell developed and tracked along that warm front that produced a tornado that hit actually my high school in the town of Granville. It moved through the town of Utica and into the suburbs of Chicago. But in Utica, uh, it hit a, uh, a tap, like a tap house, called the Milestone Tap. And unfortunately, a lot of people had went there to take shelter as it was a big brick building, and they thought that it was the best defense against any sort of tornado. And I'll tell you, uh, from firsthand experience surveying those people, they did not believe that a tornado could cross the river. And it crossed the river, and, and that forecast, by the way, was not a particularly good forecast. It, it's, I started asking the questions, what, why, you know, how, why weren't we? And then that, again, sort of stemmed and launched a career that started, still is asking some of the same questions today. Absolutely, and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of your research areas a bit later on. I want to use this segment to talk a little bit about tornado basics. Howie, why does, why does the U.S., if you look at a map of the sure. world, um, you see... Uh, that the United States, particularly the central region, is very tornado-prone, whereas you look at other parts of the world and you don't see. Why, Why is right. U.S. so tornado-prone? Well, a uh, number of reasons. First of all, uh, in the central part of the country, especially the southern plains centered in, centered in Oklahoma, you're fairly near the Gulf of Mexico, sure. which is the source of moisture. Without moisture, you don't get a cloud and a thunderstorm. Absolutely. Uh, secondly, you're near the Rocky Mountains, and uh, in the lee of the Rocky Mountains, the air comes down slope, it warms, and it produces a capping inversion, which prevents widespread thunderstorm development. Uh, you're also at a latitude where you have relatively strong winds, the jet stream come by. If you're, if you're down in southern Texas, that won't happen too often. If you're up in, uh, in Canada, that doesn't happen uh, as, as often. Uh, so you have the ingredients for supercell storms. You have strong vertical wind shear, you have the moisture, you have the potential buoyancy. Uh, you have the relatively warm, moist air near the ground, and you have the relatively cool air aloft. And it turns out, it just so happens, that these conditions happen very frequently in the southern plains of the United States. That's they exactly can happen right. anywhere in the world, but they happen very most frequently there. Right. Yeah, you see other favored locations globally. But, but, yeah, by far and away, the central plains of the United States. But anywhere you sort of have a north-south-oriented mountain chain in the mid-latitudes, you'll see that. Argentina comes to mind, uh, southeast Bangladesh area, Australia. 
uh, portions of South Africa, climatologically speaking, are, are some of the favored locations, but nothing compares to the Central Great Plains any, in the any U.S. Any thoughts from either of you? I remember back you know, to our first sort of televised episode of Weather Geeks, we had uh, Dr. Doswell on, and there was a paper out at the time talking about building a wall in the okay. Central Plains. You guys heard about oh, some? Yeah. Give me your thoughts on that. Uh, it's ridiculous. That, okay. yeah, absolutely. All right. Absolutely we, ridiculous. Okay, we can move I on. I have some snake oil for yeah. you. Yeah, we, we, we'll move on from that. But I wanted to get <laughs> your thoughts on two of the best experts. Victor, Dr. Bluestein talked about supercell tornadoes. Distinguish those from the sort of non-supercell tornadoes and water spouts and land spouts because some parts of the U.S. get those types of tornadoes and they don't necessarily spin down out of uh, supercell. They come up from the bottom, right? Yeah, well, yeah, and I mean, if you look at the term, the supercell tornado, it comes from the parent storm, the supercell, which right. by definition has a mesocyclone, which is an area of low pressure in the storm and a rotating sort of updraft, creating these pressure perturbations, and we can get really geeky really quickly. Please do. Um, Weather geeks. But the opposite uh, would be these uh, tornadoes that can form by what's really stretching of vorticity or stretching of spin that already exists in the environment. Right. So you may think of a place like eastern Colorado where there's a stationary boundary that's present and there's a lot of wind shear along the boundary and maybe a cumulus field develops along that, stretches that vorticity and like an ice skater pulling your arms in, you can perhaps stretch that spin or that vorticity down right. to the surface. And you know, it happens a lot. Sometimes you can't see it if there's no condensation occurring. Um, you know, everything from supercell tornadoes down to the dust swirls uh, that occur in your front yard when they're picking up leaves, it's all, it's, all a fun it's all the same idea of vorticity spin. Sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't. I'm gonna throw two phrases or words out there and let you both react to them. Is there a tornado season and Dixie Alley? How do both of you react to either of those terms? I'll take tornado season. Okay. You can do Dixie Alley. Oh, great. Thanks, Howie. But I know there's even controversy on <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I'll give you my thoughts. Yeah. There is a tornado <laughs> season, broadly speaking. It, it, it begins in uh, the middle of March, uh, and uh, it goes through the uh, uh, middle of June. And this is the time when most of the tornadoes occur. Mm -hmm. uh, tornado season begins down in Texas, um, uh, migrates up to Oklahoma, Kansas, and uh, by the time you get into uh, uh, mid-June, uh, uh, tornado season peaks up at, at uh, the Dakotas, maybe. Right. Even into Canada. Into but, but we can get a tornado essentially any month of the year. You can get a tornado US. any month out of the year. I remember once seeing a tornado in Oklahoma in November. Right. We had an earthquake that day, too, by the way. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and you can get them, in, we've had them in February. We've had them every month in Oklahoma, except, I think, January. But in other parts of the country, it certainly depends on your geography. A place like Oklahoma or the Texas Panhandle, you're going to see a real high probability peak in late May, early June. Somewhere like Atlanta or in the southeast, they have generally low probabilities of tornadoes that exist really through the entire annual cycle. And that's, that generally breeds a complacent population that, you know, they don't ever get the tornado season that perhaps Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas do from a magnitude perspective but the risk is there and it's there all year long. And that creates, I think, sp specific challenges when you're trying to warn folks in, in those geographic areas. Right. So I, yeah. the tornado season, I yeah. definitely agree, peaks April, May, June across the United States, but it does vary ge geographically and creates some, some challenges. 
Howie. For example, California gets gets tornadoes yeah, too. Yeah, I think in and, early and part of during the winter yeah, time. Yeah, right in the middle of the winter right. time. That's right, exactly right. Now, uh, continue on though uh, the question so, about so the Dixie, Dixie Alley, Alley that, that, issue. That's kind of, I don't know why it's controversial, but I know I, because I'm not as close to the tornado community as both of you are. Right. But some people sort of put that in the literature, and some people sort of sort of wait. Wait a minute. Look, if you look at the tornado climatology, speaking. Uh, and as, well, we're going to have some research that's coming out soon that actually shows it's been shifting off the plains into the southeast. And so I can appreciate the idea of creating these alleys, but the reality is, is there, there are no, there's no alley. There's no fence that says it's, it's going to stay in this state and not be in this state. And, and as we've said, tornadoes can happen anywhere in the U.S. They happen in Alaska and Hawaii, for goodness sakes. But, aren't the, um, uh, but I would say... The Dixie Alley issue in particular is an area where there's a, lot, there's a high tornado climatology especially significant tornadoes, so that are probably biased because they're rated higher, because there's structures to hit, but it's also a very vulnerable population. We see, we tend to see supercells in those areas that are fast moving, they're at night when they're difficult so to walk for. That's right. They're in, uh, in an area that's already very vulnerable from a population standpoint. We do see a lot of mobile weak frame housing s structures in the southeastern United States. So I think, and, and this goes to perhaps some of the reason why we have Vortex Southeast, which is, I th if you ask me as a scientist, and people may argue with me, the physics of the southeastern United States are not any different than the physics in the plains. This is a, a societal issue of warning these folks, right. and, and I, 2011, if you ask me, was a, the perfect case. Well, I want to pick up on two things. But I, 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 my understanding is that the QLCS, these quasi-linear con, uh, convective system type tornadoes, tend to be a bit more prevalent in the southeast. Is that a true statement, or am I inflating I, that statement there? How are you? I, I think so. I mean, we've seen them in Oklahoma yeah. Uh, yeah. quite a bit. And the, QCL, the, uh, the QLCS tornadoes tend to come in the morning or at night, at night. That's right. which makes things difficult. I'll tell you a little story. We had one in Norman uh, this past year, and it surprised me. Uh, I was out at a restaurant, and the squall line was coming in, and, and, uh, and uh, I looked at my cell phone. I knew something was happening, and there was a, a small vortex signature, yeah. and it touched down just a few miles away, and had that gone through Norman, that could have been quite serious because it was after dark and people weren't as aware. Well, let's talk about after dark and nocturnal because I know you led an experiment called Pecan or Pecan, depending on what part of the South. I was in it. I didn't lead it. You didn't lead it, but you were one of the key as scientists involved. Uh, what were the goals of, of that particular experiment? Well, Pecan really, one of the goals of Pecan, the goals of Pecan were not to learn about tornadoes, nocturnal tornadoes. Right. They were about to learn, they were to learn about nocturnal convection over the plains. Sure. And uh, it, it turns out that uh, uh, after midnight, there's a maximum in thunderstorm activity over the plains, and which is absolutely fascinating. Right. But it's not necessarily connected with tornadoes. So that's interesting. I, I think that uh, people like Walker Ashley, one of your colleagues, and yeah. others have talked about these nocturnal tornadoes as well. Um, we may have to pick up on this a bit more in the podcast, but I want to ask you a question that get your initial reaction to it. Can we have too much lead time to warn for tornadoes? Is there a sweet spot time? I, I don't really think so. Um, uh, although you certainly don't want uh, people thinking that, oh, I have 45 minutes to get out of Dodge uh, and have everybody run over to the interstate and clog up the highway. Uh, so I don't think so. And if you know that a tornado is going to hit uh, 45 minutes or an hour in advance, I don't know if we can do this ever, but if we could do it, then that would give people time 
to uh, perhaps be able to get out of the way, uh, prepare things in their house, close the windows, do whatever needs to be done. Uh, a lot of lead time to me is good. Welcome back to Weather Geeks, and I'm talking with Dr. Howie Bluestein and Victor Gensini. Dr. Gensini's at Northern Illinois, and Howie Bluestein is a legendary scientist in our field at University of Oklahoma. And uh, we were talking about lead time for tornadoes. I mean, there's, I think we're on average, what, about 14, 15 minutes of lead time, mm -hmm. uh, what some of the literature says right now. Uh, there's been some discussion that suggests that too much lead time actually would be uh, a detriment to warning the public. Uh, Victor, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think it depends on you know the, who's consuming the information. To be honest with you, if I'm a, from first of all, by the way, from a scientific perspective, I would love to give the most amount of lead time possible. I don't know if we have the societal uh, expertise to know right now how people are consuming the information, whether or not it's a good or bad thing for lead time. But imagine yourself as a hospital administrator, and you're responsible for maybe thousands of patients and getting them to safety. I would say a 45 minute lead time would be a great thing. Mm -hmm. Now, for the average person who's consuming the information, maybe sitting on the couch, they see the tornado warning go, they have 45 minutes. I mean, what are you going to do in 45 minutes of lead time? You might go outside. to. Con you know, generally, what we see is when there's a tornado warning issued, people try to confirm the threat. So they may dial grandma. They may dial family. They may dial friends to try to figure out if the threat is real. Even if it's from a trusted source, they generally try to confirm the threat. The, the, the societal uh, research is pretty clear there. Um, what they do in that period of confirmation of threat to actually taking action, um, I'm not sure we have the answer to that yet. Yeah, and you bring up some points that I really wanted to touch on here in this discussion with both of you. You think, by the way, you think forecasting supercells and tornadoes are hard? Forecasting what a human, yeah, human element and what they're going to do, well, right? That's a challenge. Well, then this is where I'm going because <laughs> do, are we, one, equipped to best warn the human being about this tornado threat, and what I mean by this from a social sciences perspective. And are there inherently things about us as humans that make us particularly vulnerable or misuse information out there? And, and where I'm going with this is the rise of sort of social sciences within uh, meteorology and within warning. People are spending a lot of time thinking about the colors that we use. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I taught a class at University of Georgia, and we read some literature that suggested the public, some public are more literate on what the polygon even means. Some people mm -hmm. think it means the tornado's in the middle of the polygon. They mm -hmm. don't understand sort of this orientation. So give me your thoughts on warning the public and the way we warn. I mean, are watches and warnings effective? Does the PDS, particularly dangerous situation toward them, it means something to us? Does that really mean anything to the public? What are your thoughts there? Boy, I, I, I have to speak as, as a scientist and the public. <laughs> Please do. I guess. Uh, when I hear that something is a particularly dangerous situation, uh, on one hand, I, I, I think, well, boy, this, there could really be a strong tornado. As a storm chaser, I think, oh, no, th there could be a, this could panic people. Yes. And th it might not happen. And if people uh, think about a particularly dangerous situation, a PDS too often, uh, they're, they're going to uh, think that uh, we're crying wolf and not going to react in the right way. Well, well, here's a, let me just lob this out there. Aren't all tornadoes particularly dangerous? Uh, sure. Okay. Well, so, ask me, yes. I, right. So, <laughs> of course. I, I mean, so I, I want, just want to sort of think about that in the context because I also worry about that sort of cry wolf, wolf false alarm rate as well. Victor, what are your I, thoughts? I think there's, they're all dangerous. Uh, I do think, though, there are varying levels of danger okay. as well, right? If you have a violent, a confirmed violent tornado from a storm chaser or Howie's radar that's moving in to a populated area, 
And, you know, obviously the, the potential for catastrophe or disaster is greatly magnified in those situations versus the QLCS tornado that happens at midnight that may affect a much, you know, more local population. Unfortunately, again, sometimes even if you're looking at radar and you have a strong confirmed circulation, again, the, the, maybe with Howie's radars, but not with the operational 88D network, we cannot detect a tornado. We detect circulations within the storms. And so the varying, you know, there are signatures. There's been some research that's been done saying that, you know, this, this delta V on the radar is generally a signature of a, of a significant tornado, F2 or F3, 4, so on. Um, Boy, but I would not want to be in the hot seat as a warning person saying that, you know, this is a dangerous situation. I'm trained on the meteorology aspect, not necessarily the impacts of, of those sort of situations. going to give you three scenarios here. Okay. And tell me, and it may be an unfair question, but that's okay. Let's have some discussion. <laughs> the new GOES satellite, dual polarimetric radar, or advances in some of the models that we've seen like HRR. Which of those do you cool. find most valuable? Oh, boy. Wow. That's 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 we're gonna, we're politically make a lot of colleagues too. mad on this. We one. are going to get very upset. upset. Let's go there. Let's not get upset. Uh, let's not upset people. Let's not let's not rank them. Talk about their relative value to you as as tornadoes to scientists. Well, I, I, I would I would I'm going to put my foot right in the middle over here. I'm going to say the polarimetric radar is important for now casting. Okay. Because that's going to tell you is there a vortex signature and is there debris. That's going to tell you yes there really is a tornado out here and which way is it going, and you can warn people. That is probably the most important. From, from, from the standpoint of forecasting, more than 5, 10, 10, 20 minutes, I would say the model. If you can produce models, and they're getting there, they can tell me that uh, uh, ensemble uh, models, I run the model many, many times with different initial conditions, slightly different in initial conditions and different types of microphysics and so on, and uh, they tell me that uh, uh, storms are very likely to form in this area, move in this direction, and are very likely to rotate, that's extremely valuable for the one hour, two hour, three hour mm -hmm. time scales. Absolutely. Yeah, I think from a day, I'm gonna take a little different perspective. Uh, I like day two and three models. For day one, I, I'm like everybody weather geek, right? If you're chasing, I'm looking at the her in the morning and I'm trying to figure out where convective initiation will be. But looking at satellite and looking at surface observations and doing a very thorough analysis in the morning, uh, there, I have, you know, there are folks at SPC that would tell you there's no such thing as the, a model on day one. Day one is now casting and using surface observations and satellite. And then once the storm gets going, I think absolutely Howie is correct, dual pole radar is, is invaluable. But from my perspective, looking at the brand new GOES satellite and that, that initial problem of whether or not a storm forms convective initiation, the way we look at that now has changed with GO-16. And now, and then with the sister satellite 17, uh, is going to, I think, be great from yeah, a now casting perspective. But it, but it won't be a panacea. Uh, there are so many times when uh, a necessary condition, of course, is to have convective initiation. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, how many times have you been along the dry line where convection goes up and the conditions are ripe for supercells and you get very excited and the storms go up? and come right back down and totally fizzle out. So yes, it's- it Happens I, all the time. All the time. So I think it's, it's very important to, to see yep. where storms might form a little bit later on, but getting to the point where 
uh, you have to ask, will they become supercells? Will they produce tornadoes? And it's always interesting in the you models because sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll see something on the models and you'll see it developing in real time and you say, oh, that model said, you know, this storm perhaps is going to be the isolated storm that maybe has a higher potential of producing a tornado. Sometimes the model's right and sometimes it's wrong. Um, that's a really tough question, though, to, to pick one. Well, that's why I withdraw the question. <laughs> but, but I will. But I will. I will. I will say one thing you said that I really think is very, very important. This wasn't the question you asked. You, you gave me three, three choices. <laughs> you threw in another one that I would have gone for, and that is surface observations. Uh -huh. Yeah. Going when back I to the when point. I storm chase, and I know that storms are going up, and I know that the models tell me yes, the herd tells me that there's very mm -hmm. likely to be a, a, a rotating storm. I look at the surface observations, Agreed. and I look very carefully to see where the tongue of uh, maximum moisture is going, yes. where the warmest air is, where the, uh, the winds are strongest at the surface. And that's what I use to find out where of all the storms that are out there will the one that's most likely to produce a tornado be. Right. I'm very jealous, I, by I the way, that, to, that you to, have a mesonet in Oklahoma. Yeah, right. I just in, say in, that? Other, in other states, in other states, <laughs> Oklahoma was the first, yeah. but uh, Texas has one. And Iowa, other, other states yeah. are we getting one. We even have a little bit of something yeah. here that's emerging in Georgia with the automated uh, UAA. Automated I guess for networks. the listeners that aren't familiar, a mesonet is just a very high-density surface observation network, generally one or two per county, right. uh, versus the you know much Unless, greater spacing. Other than just one at every airport. <laughs> right. Yes. right. Now. The, just kind of starting to put a bow on the discussion. It's been amazing. If you're listening, you are getting some valuable insight and knowledge here from some two of the best. So I hope you're really enjoying it, like I am. Um, Victor, what are you seeing? We're in early April. What are you seeing with your analysis for the upcoming next couple of weeks to months? And oh, well, we get to forecast whether or not we're going to have a good tornado <laughs> season, Howie. Uh, I'll tell you what. One of the general things that we look at in this what we call S2S framework. So S2S is subseasonal to seasonal, so two weeks to basically two months. What are we expecting on the horizon? The major driver of that variability across the Northern Hemisphere is the Pacific Ocean. Uh, you go back to papers in the 1970s from Madden and Julian looking at the Madden and Julian oscillation and, and uh, where convection is, is centered across the equatorial Pacific. And I can tell you that we've been in a, a rather lame pattern, if you like severe weather across the United States, but your, uh, your, your homeowner's insurance is probably thanking you this year across most of the US. Um, what we're seeing, and the short of it is, we think this convection is going to start to move east towards the dateline, which will then change the jet stream pattern across the Pacific, and we should really start to see an uptick in severe weather. Uh, right now, it looks like the end of April, plus or minus a week in there, where things will start to return to spring, at least across most of the country that's had a below, below average temperatures. And, and uh, you know, I'll just say, too, if you like Tornado Alley, we're having a major issue in the Great Plains and the drought. We just, we, Howie and I were looking at some maps uh, backstage, uh, the, the, the drought in Amarillo and southwest Kansas, Liberal and Dodge City uh, is Colorado, is, too. Colorado is, is, farly, is fairly remarkable and uh, that will change the sensible and latent heat budgets across the plains and uh, we'll have to see how that alters tornado season. Talk, but, to talk about that a little bit more, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that and how it alters? I mean, we, we just yeah, sensible sure. latent heat yeah. floods, dry sure. line evolution, what, what, how does this well, impact things? If the soil stays dry out to the west, it's going to absorb more heat. If it were moist, you would have to take some of that energy and evaporate, evaporate the water. Evaporate the water. Sure. So that would argue that the dry line is going to get farther to the east. However, that would only mean that we have a greater chance of getting storms in central Oklahoma than That's in right. western Oklahoma. We don't know whether those storms would necessarily right. be supercells or tornadic or not. Mm -hmm. I would also hesitate 
uh, to make a prediction uh, whether or not three weeks from now, for some reason, it, it might just rain an awful lot yeah, sure. out to the west and end the drought and the soil gets very, very wet. So I'm going to be very cautious. I, I, I'd really <laughs> like to see you trying to, to make these long-range forecasts. Yeah. We've and, made and, 50. And, and, sounds like we have a little bit of a and, not and I, I'd like, sort I'd like, of caution I'd like, here. I'd like to believe them, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's I'm okay advocate. With that. So so and we've got a little devil's advocate. We've got we really made, sort of some cutting edge stuff going on yeah, here, but then there made, is some skepticism in the community. Oh, you know absolutely. it. You know absolutely. it exists, right? Yeah. So we've made but, 50 of these forecasts so far. 50 yeah. since we started in 2015. Right. And we've gotten and if you look at our stats, they're online. We've gotten 35 of them right. Okay. Okay. So right. taking a look at the numbers, climatology says you should get 20, 25 right just from pure chance. And so your, your, your concept is you're, in a, the way I understand it, and you're the expert, yeah. you're looking at sort of something, the angular momentum exactly of the right. jet stream yeah. patterns and yeah. how wavy they are. Yeah. And generally the thought is, right, well, this goes back to weather 100. If you have a meridional pattern across the Pacific and jets coming into the west, and if you're a severe weather person, you like to see troughing in the western United States. Okay. That creates polar moisture flux, and you get conditions that are generally ripe for at least thunderstorms. Now, whether or not you get tornadoes on the mesoscale, uh, that's hand-waving. Uh, there are other patterns that are just not. They're very zonal. They don't have a, you don't have a lot of storm. This is a wave number issue. Sure. It really, it is. You go sure. back to it. Uh, and this is stuff that's been researched as far back as Hadley in the 1800s. But, right. uh, yeah, but you're still gonna have to win over some of the community. Oh, buttons. hey, I hear, I, think, I, hear I hear it. I hear it. These are very, very challenging problems. But there are many instances when we can have a, a tornado outbreak mm -hmm. when there's not a trough out west. Oh yeah. When there's strong zonal you know flow. So for you're example. suggesting that I could. No, I'm suggesting that that if you look over a long period of time, I think you're right. But if you're trying to make a, a forecast for this season, uh, I think your skill yep. will probably be limited. I will, we but, will never get those mesoscale events. But you're doing all that you can do. I mean, you're right, do, I right. think you're doing the right thing. Well, Otherwise, you run, a, you run, a, you run a, a numerical model for more than 10 days, you're going to get, you're gonna get noise. I, no, absolutely. And I, I think, think that's no right. No skill whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I saw uh, this point of sort of maximizing what you can do. Uh, so, uh, Victor, what's the website if people want to kind of follow along with it and sort of verify and see if you're sure. right uh, Just go to atlas.niu.edu. Really okay. easy. Atlas like a map. How you're sort of—I don't know how close to the end of your career you are, um, but you certainly have been in the field for a while. As someone that's been in the field and been doing this for some time, I know we have a lot of young listeners out there, the weather geeks. What are some things that you are off, would offer as advice to, uh, from uh, your perspective as a longtime scientist and innovator in this field? Someone that people like me and Victor look up to and have known Absolutely. your name, read your books, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, if you want to do what we do and want to have all the fun that we have, uh, make sure that you uh, take a lot of physics and math, uh, especially when you're young. Uh, make sure you take English. You need to be able to communicate and write. Absolutely. And go where your heart is. Uh, 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 don't try to make a lot of money. Do exactly what you want to do. I think you just picked up on something that uh, when, I, when I was president of AMS, and uh, we surveyed our membership, people really were passionate about this. It's middle school. They weren't driven by money or fame. All these, they just love the weather. And I think that's probably your story, too. I'm right, in that Victor? boat, absolutely. So t t as someone that, you know, young assistant professor, uh, well-known in sort of the literature already for what you do, what advice do you have? And also, I want to get both your thoughts on the chasing, because you both are chasers. And I want to kind of get, before we get out of here, I want to get some thoughts from you on the chasing and your advice to the young chaser out there. From an early career perspective, be flexible. Uh, you know, take, when that window of opportunity opens, take it. Uh, 
you, you really, though, at the end of the day, I think you have to work hard and you have to be passionate. And I, I love the students that come to me and they'll say, you know, I'm not the best in math and physics, but they're, they're coachable, they work hard, uh, and they're flexible. They're willing to move to Anchorage to take their first job in the National Weather Service. And so those young students that are getting out trying to, you know, move up the career ladder, you have to be flexible and, you know, don't ever waste an opportunity. To the folks that are interested in research in graduate school, absolutely, you need to be well-versed in mathematics and physics. Communication skills are, are really important. Try not to spread yourself too thin. You know, create a nice niche for yourself, work hard within that niche, and, and be well-versed in many things. It's, it's hard. It's, it's, a, it's a balance between you want to have everything under the umbrella, but you want to you make sure that you have a really significant focus and, and create some research lanes for yourself. Yes. And Howie, what about chasing? I, I did because in the last couple of years, there have been some incidents, and we don't want to focus on sort of the negative aspects, but what would you offer? Because, I mean, it's, more people are doing it, and what would you say as two experienced chasers as, as we kind of get into the season here for 2018? Well, don't do it for the thrills and spills. You do it because you want to appreciate the beauty and power of nature, and you want to learn something. Right. Uh, for my graduate students, I can't tell you how wonderful it is for them to go out, make forecasts in the morning, verify the forecasts, run the radar, collect data, see all the things that can go wrong, process the data, analyze the data, and then try to do the science. It's from, from the beginning to the very, very, very end. It's the complete experience. Victor, I can't let you get out of here for this podcast without at least sort of tapping into a little of your research on the future. Uh, with, yeah. with our evolving climate and sure. tornadoes. You've done a little research. Now, you always have tornadoes in these active periods, and people are like, oh, it's caused by climate change. Oh, it can't be caused. We've always had tornadoes. Where are we on that? Yeah, and Marshall, you know, you've, you're familiar with my dissertation work at, at the University of Georgia. I know a little something about yeah. that. Former committee <laughs> this, is, this, is, uh, you know, this is an issue where uh, it's, it's a challenging problem, first of all, because we have to run a lot of different models to capture this, this quote-unquote ensemble of outcomes. Um, but generally what we see are more... To, more more environments that are, are favorable for severe storms, so we may not have that triggering mechanism, but we've actually tried to resolve supercells down to that scale, and we see an increase in those number of storms and also an increase in the variability. So as you go forward in the future, our climate models are suggesting that on, as a whole, on average, we will have more severe convective storms across the U.S., but we're also going to have more variable seasons. So you have some seasons that are just, you know, not very many tornadoes at all, and the insurance companies are very happy, and other years where you see significant numbers and frequency in locations that are generally very vulnerable. And I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but some of our latest and greatest is that we actually have detected a significant shift off the Great Plains of the United States in terms of frequency. There's still number one in terms of Tornado Alley, that Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas corridor. But the trend through time has been downward there and actually increasing in places like Arkansas, Tennessee, and Mississippi. What's driving that? We don't know. Okay, well, that's a, <laughs> we a future know. master's yeah, dis or yeah. dissertation. Right now, we don't know. Well, Howie, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, what is your thought on the future of weather forecasting, funding for our field, and the outlook for what we need to do going forward with these questions? Well, first of all, I think we're, our forecasting skills are getting better and better. Computer models are getting more and more sophisticated. But we must have adequate observations that go into the models. Radar data, surface observations, Raymond Sons. We need profilers. We used to have profilers 
Uh, Talk to us about a what a profiler is. What is a profiler? A profiler is a Doppler radar that looks uh, almost vertically, that gets you the wind, same as a function of height, just as you would from a, a weather balloon, except instead of twice a day, it gives it to you every six minutes or every hour. Right. These are extremely useful, and we had a network of these in the central part of the United States, and there wasn't enough funding to keep them, to keep them going. We need to have more uh, uh, networks, mesonetworks. We need to have more measurements in the boundary layer of moisture, uh, measurements of temperature and moisture in the lowest kilometer on a very, very dense scale, uh, like the scale that we have for the, uh, the mesonet. We need, the, we need these data sets for the numerical models. That's where we have to end. I want to thank you both for joining us thank on the inaugural sure. Weather Geeks podcast. That's it's been great. great. And uh, join us on Weather Geeks in the podcast. We're going to talk about weather and have some fun and geek out.